This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. guys, welcome back to Portable Peds, your pediatric board review podcast. Today we're going to wrap up our month on immunodeficiencies with a review episode of all the high yield points from our three cases this month. So let's jump right in with talking about the common situations where you should suspect an immunodeficiency. These are going to include recurrent opportunistic or severe infections, failure to thrive, family history of immunodeficiency or early deaths, lymphopenia, especially in infancy, and report of complications after receiving a live vaccine. So Ryan's going to take us through kind of how we start to think about immune system in general. So as you know, the immune system is broken down into innate and adaptive immunity. So innate immunity is the first line defense, and it's very nonspecific. So when you think innate immunity, you think phagocytic cells, natural killer or NK cells, toll-like receptors, and complement. So let's discuss a few of these disorders first. So if you remember from last week, our case was on innate immunodeficiencies, and the patient presented with Chediak-Higashi syndrome. This is an autosomal recessive phagocytic defect. These patients present with uh, typically oculocutaneous albinism with silvery hair and frequently get skin and sinopulmonary infections. While their platelet counts can be normal oftentimes, they're typically prone to easy bleeding and bruising due to abnormal platelet function. If they survive until adulthood, they can actually develop ataxia and peripheral neuropathy as well. However, oftentimes up to 85% of patients will eventually develop the accelerated phase of this disorder, and this can happen at any age, and it's caused by excess lymphocyte proliferation due to EBV or Epstein-Barr virus infection. These patients will typically present with a high fever, moderate to severe lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, and pancytopenia, which can often be misconstrued as uh, ALL, and these patients tend to have a poor prognosis. The complement system is also a major driver of the innate immune system. As a quick review, there are three initial pathways, classical, lectin, and alternative, which activate C3 to C3B. C3B will then activate C5 to form C5 to 9, known as the membrane attack complex, or MAC. The MAC functions by creating a hole in bacterial cell walls, which allows for cell lysis. This typically works on bacteria that aren't normally susceptible to opsonization and phagocytosis, such as Haemophilus, Miraxilla, and most importantly, Neisseria. So therefore, patients with a deficiency in C5, 6, 7, 8, or 9, known as terminal complement deficiency, leads to an inability to form the membrane attack complex, and these patients tend to get severe disseminated Neisseria sepsis or meningitis. Also, patients with early complement deficiency of C1 through 4, they're at increased risk for developing infections with encapsulated bacteria, such as Neisseria meningitidis, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and Haemophilus influenza. However, they differ from terminal complement deficiency in that they're at an increased risk for developing autoimmune deficiencies, specifically lupus. We also discussed a couple other phagocytic disorders. Uh, we'll start with talking about leukocyte adhesion deficiency, which has three types, type 1 being the most commonly tested on exams, 
It's an autosomal recessive disorder due to abnormal or deficient beta-2 integrin, which is used for mobilization of leukocytes to extravascular sites of inflammation. Diagnosis can be made by the absence of CD18 on flow cytometry, and they often have leukocytosis as well on CBC, which is typically greater than 29,000. Presentations of this disease can include delayed separation of the umbilical cord, omphalitis, and recurrent severe pyogenic infections, including periodontitis, gingivitis, and perirectal abscesses. Infections are predominantly caused by Staphylococcus aureus and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and treatment of LAD1 is with an allogenic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Next, we're going to talk about hyper-IgE syndrome, or Job syndrome. This is an autosomal dominant or recessive, but the autosomal dominant is more common for that form, um, and it's caused by a mutation in STAT3. This syndrome typically presents with a classic triad of eczema, recurrent skin and lung infections, and elevated IgE levels. However, the IgE levels are not necessary for diagnosis of hyper-IgE syndrome, oddly enough, because in an adult, about 20% can actually have normal IgE levels. These patients tend to have a characteristic facies with facial asymmetry, exaggerated pore size giving a rough appearance of the face, a prominent forehead, deep-set eyes, broad nose, triangular jaw, and the weird one is the two rows of teeth due to retained primary teeth. If you look at an image, it is the stuff of nightmares. Um, These patients also have cold skin abscesses. This is very common without increased warmth, erythema, or pain. They also get frequent pyogenic pneumonias that are typically caused by staph aureus, strep pneumo, and H flu. However, the poor healing may have them lead to pneumatoceles and or bronchiectasis, which predisposes them to future infections in these spaces left behind due to pseudomonas and aspergillus. So remember, elevated IgE levels are actually not necessary diagnostic criteria for hyper-IgE syndrome. And these patients may also have other systemic manifestations such as scoliosis, hyperextensibility, Chiari-1 malformations, craniosynostosis, arterial aneurysms, and an increased chance of developing lymphoma. And last, we are gonna, we close out our innate immunodeficiency discussion with chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD. This is due to a defect in NADPH oxidase, leading to a lack of the respiratory burst needed to kill catalase-positive organisms, such as Staph aureus, Serratia marcescens, Burkholderia cepatia, Salmonella, Nocardia, and Aspergillus. This is typically extinct recessive, but about one-third of cases are autosomal recessive. Patients tend to present with recurrent infections, especially separative lymphadenitis, skin infections, pneumonias, brain abscesses, and osteomyelitis, along with GI and or GU obstruction due to granuloma formation. Hepatosplenomegaly may also be there too. Definitive diagnosis can be made with DHR or NBT, which is dihydrorhodamine oxidation or nitroblue tetrazoleum slide test, and you can listen to the previous episode for how those tests work. These patients are often treated with hematopoietic stem cell transplant or prophylactic antibiotics such as Bactrim and Itraconazole. Now I'll toss it back over to Sammy to talk about some of the adaptive immune system. So adaptive immunity, on the other hand, is actually where we start to see more highly specific cell function. So the key players in this are going to be B cells, T cells, and immunoglobulins. So we can further subdivide the adaptive immune system between cell-mediated immunity and humoral immunity. Humoral immunity is going to deal more primarily with B cells and the antibody response, whereas cell-mediated immunity involves T cell function. So disorders of humoral immunity present after six months of age, as maternal antibodies progressively are lost from about three to six months of age. So let's go over three high-yield disorders of humoral immunodeficiencies. So we can start with the most common, which is selective IgA deficiency. 
This is characterized by low serum concentrations of IgA with normal concentrations of all other immunoglobulin isotypes. It can have a variety of presentations ranging from asymptomatic to any combination of the following features. So these are atopic disease, frequent respiratory infections, chronic diarrhea or Giardia lambia infections, or autoimmune or rheumatologic disorders. Treatment is going to be targeted towards management of the presenting infection. The next and most important disorder is X-linked or Bruton's agammaglobinemia, which is due to a mutation in Bruton's tyrosine kinase or the BTK gene. Infections seen in this disorder are due to severe depletion of all immunoglobulin types, secondary to a block in the maturation of B cells. While there is a lack of mature B cells in peripheral blood, the number and function of T cells is normal. Lymphoid tissue in these patients is often hypoplastic. The infections most commonly associated with X-linked agammaglobulinemia often include chronic enteroviral infections and infections with encapsulated bacteria, such as Neisseria meningitidis, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and Haemophilus influenza. These patients are commonly treated with monthly IVIG replacement. And the last disorder of humoral immunity that we will discuss is common variable immunodeficiency. This disorder also leads to decreased levels of all immunoglobulin isotypes with normal numbers of B and T cells. Common variable immunodeficiency usually presents in the second or third decade of life in contrast to younger presentations of the X-linked agammaglobulinemia. Presentations in common variable immunodeficiency, or commonly known as CVID, include respiratory infections, GI infections, and autoimmune disorders. These patients will have diminished titers to childhood immunizations, most commonly diphtheria and tetanus. This disorder is also in common with the last one we talked about, treated with IVIG. So I know that was a lot of information so far, but Ryan's going to talk to us more about these T-cell-mediated disorders. All right. If we haven't put you to sleep yet, we've got plenty of time left. So let's switch gears and round out our discussion by talking about T-cell-mediated disorders of the adaptive immune system. So these disorders... Uh, cause severe immunodeficiency, and the affected patients are at high risk for opportunistic infections, especially due to viruses and fungi. So due to the interdependence of the T and B cell systems, these disorders can have many features of the immunoglobulin deficiencies as well. So let's review the high yield points about some of the most common of these disorders. So first we're going to start with Wiscott-Aldrich. This is an X-linked recessive disorder caused by a defect in the WASP protein, WASP, that codes for B and T cell signaling. It typically presents with pyogenic infections, such as recurrent otitis media and sinusitis, opportunistic infections, typically with HSV and uh, varicella zoster, also with eczema and thrombocytopenia. Notably as well, these patients are also at increased risk of malignancy, especially B-cell lymphoma and acute lymphocytic leukemia. Next, we're going to talk about X-linked lymphoproliferative syndrome, which has two types, with type 1 being due to a defect in gene coding for SH2D1A protein, and type 2 being due to a defect in the gene that codes for the XIAP protein. These patients can be asymptomatic until contracting EBV and then develop fulminant liver failure. If patients survive that acute illness, they're at increased risk for hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, B-cell lymphoma, aplastic anemia, or hypergammaglobulinemia. Next, we're going to shift over to chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. This can be either inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion when the STAT1 gene is involved, or it can be autosomal recessive when the AIRE gene is involved. In either case, the persistent or recurrent candidal infections is the major clinical takeaway. These babies and children often present with refractory thrush, diaper rashes, and onychomycosis, so infections of the nails. They also have cutaneous energy to candida, and due to this, they cannot mount an a proper immune response. 
Next is one that I hadn't heard of before, which is the ZAP70 deficiency. It's marked by impaired T-cell activation due to a signaling defect. The hallmark of this disorder is lymphopenia with CD4 counts that are low, normal, or high, and the absence of CD8 cells. The CD4 cells that are present are impaired as they do not produce cytotoxic T-cells, and the manifestations end up looking similar to SCID, but these children tend to have a more mild clinical course. They're often diagnosed later, and they often tend to live a little longer than kids with SCID. And finally, we're going to round it out by talking about 22Q11 deletion, which is formerly known as DeGeorge syndrome. And these babies typically have a syndromic appearance with low-set ears, micro or retronathia, hypertelorism, and or facial clefts. These patients are also prone to having congenital heart defects and developmental delay. And the most common of the congenital heart defects that you'll see presented on exams is Tetralogy of Fallot. However, the hallmark features are thymic and parathyroid hypoplasia or aplasia, which in turn leads to the quintessential immunodeficiency and hypoparathyroidism. The initial presentation, however, most notably includes hypocalcemic tetany and recurrent infections. Interestingly enough, though, the degree of immunodeficiency can vary considerably, and T-cell function can improve spontaneously. Treatment choice depends on whether complete or partial DeGeorge syndrome is present, with complete requiring thymic or hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and incomplete only requiring calcium and vitamin D supplementation. And finally, like we promised in the last episode, we didn't talk about SCID the whole month, but we've got a whole blurb right now about SCID, and Sam's going to take it away for us. Yeah, so this is one of the most fascinating diseases, or I guess I should say multitude of diseases, that I think can be talked about with immunodeficiency disorders. So with SCID, or severe combined immunodeficiency, it is the abnormal development of both B cells and T cells. There's tons of mutations that can lead to this group of disorders, and due to this, so many different presentations. We could honestly spend an entire episode on SCID itself, which may be a bonus episode in the future. Um, but for right now, let's just go over a few of the highest yield points. So you can think of SCID as a problem directly with B lymphocytes or with T helper cells not properly activating those B lymphocytes. The most common types of typical SCID are X-linked SCID, adenosine deaminase deficiency SCID, RAG1 or RAG2 deficiency SCID, and IL-7 receptor deficiency SCID. There are many other forms of SCID that are due to autosomal recessive mutations and are more into the category of atypical SCID. SCID will usually present between two to six months of age, and with many of the opportunistic and severe infections that we previously talked about, such as viral infections, candidiasis, mycobacterium, and pneumocystis. Diagnosis can be initially suspected with the clinical presentation of the child and the CBC showing decreased T-cells, and then doing flow cytometry to confirm this T-cell deficiency. A chest x-ray may also show an absent thymus, which may be a clue as well, but is not diagnostic, as other disorders can present with this as well. Currently, several states have also adopted the T-cell receptor excision circle, commonly known as the TREC assay, as part of their routine newborn screening programs, and an abnormal TREC on newborn screen can help with early diagnosis and intervention for these patients, which is crucial. As a future pediatrician, it'll be very important for you to check with your state to see if TREC is included on your state's newborn screen. Definitive treatment will include bone marrow or hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and then other options also include IVIG, antibiotics, antifungals, or enzyme replacements, all that would be indicated based on the type of skid that's affecting the child you're taking care of. So that about wraps it up with everything. I know that was a ton of information, so feel free to go back through, listen to this review episode, especially before taking boards, um, or just as you see patients that you are concerned about. Um, we'd also love for you to share our podcast with a friend. So we want to personally share our 
appreciation and love for Zach Goldman for designing all the artwork that you see on our social media and our website. And want to give a huge shout out to Scott Holmes for creating the intro and outro music. So lastly, stick around after the credits for some very high yield blooper reels. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Remember to share with your friends um, and colleagues. Next month, we're going to be talking about all topics related to adolescent medicine, and we're very excited to have one of our colleagues as a guest host. So be sure to tune in, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey everyone, welcome back to Portable Peds, your portable pedia. <laughs> and then last, we talked about chronic granulomatous disease. Did I say chronic? I yeah. said chronic. <laughs> yeah, so the adaptive immune system is where really specific key players can start to play. So the adaptive immune system is where we start to see more specific cells. Stuff. Neisseria meningitidis, streptococcus pneumonia. You know what? This is a lot of information. You, you deserve a break. Let's just pause. Take, take a drink. Take a breather. And then we'll jump into Take a nap. Walk around the block. <laughs> With your iPod. Nailed, Nailed it. it. <laughs> <laughs>